This morning, our scripture text that we're about to turn to is Ephesians 1, 1 through 2. You can start turning there in your Bibles if you have your own copies or follow along in the bulletin. And we might be tempted when we open up these words, the opening words of the Apostle Paul's letter to a group of Christians that lived in Ephesus, a major city in the Roman Empire, in Asia Minor, and what would be modern-day Turkey. We would be tempted to hear these words and to think of them as a kind of perfunctory greeting. Paul's just telling us who he is. He's telling us who he's writing to. I wouldn't think you were silly or ignorant if you thought that. I, I, I get it, but you would be wrong. Because in these words, we don't just have a perfunctory greeting. We have the gospel being presented to us. We have the beginning and the end of the Christian life being put on display. So let's turn now to these words that are so much more than just a perfunctory greeting and see how God meets us in our need, even in these opening verses of this book. Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please pray with me? God, we long for that day when we'll see you face to face, when we will join with all the saints in beholding your glory, when we will be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We long for that day, but we thank you that even until that day comes, as we just sang, we even now have union with you. Even now you speak to us from your word. So help us now to have ears to hear, to have eyes to see Jesus, to have hands and feet that are quick to obey. Help me, God, in my weakness, in my sin, in my ignorance, to speak only your words, and help all of us now as we, your servants, listen for you. Send us your Holy Spirit to enable us to do this. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. What do you want out of life? What do you hope will be true of your life experience at the end of your days? I imagine if I actually took a poll of the room, we would hear lots of different answers to those questions to be sure, but we would probably also hear some recurring themes. But maybe you hear that really significant question and you're struggling to drum up any answer altogether off the cuff. So let, let me ask a different question. What do you want out of your summer? Winter is going to be here before too long. I feel that in my bones as someone from the southeast. It's coming again. <laughs> Maybe it's difficult to answer the question, what do you want out of your life? But what, what do you want to accomplish this summer? What do you hope you will have experienced by the time that it's over? Again, if we pause to answer those questions, certainly we would give different answers, but I'm sure many of you would say something like, 
I really hope that I will have enjoyed time with the people that I love the most. Or I really hope that I will have contributed something significant to my field of work. Or maybe put negatively, I really hope that I will have avoided suffering. Maybe not suffering altogether, but the really bad stuff, the cancer diagnosis, the phone call in the middle of the night. I want to put before us this morning that many of our honest, functional answers to those questions that I've asked you are not bad. They're not wrong. They're not inherently evil desires, but they're insufficient. They're actually weak desires, even though they're desires for some of God's good gifts. Maybe some of you are familiar with the words of C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, where he says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This morning, as we look at Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, we're going to answer just three pretty straightforward questions together. We're going to consider who is Paul, who are we, and what is the gospel? So if you're a note taker, that's where we're headed. Hope that helps you to follow along. But my hope for us, my goal for us this morning is that as we answer those questions that help us to pay attention to these words that are so much more than a perfunctory greeting, that we will be equipped to see that God, who made us and loves us, offers us so much more than the things that we find ourselves naturally desiring in our day-in, day-out lives. So first, who is Paul? In the first century Roman Empire, it was customary for someone to open the letter by stating who they are. Uh, Pretty different from the way that we write letters today, or maybe more likely emails, where we sign our names at the end. Love, Ethan. Sincerely, Ethan. Well, in that day and age, you put your name right at the beginning. So although this is not just a perfunctory greeting, Paul is following custom and telling his audience who he is. But the next words out of his mouth further describe his identity. He says he is an apostle. And when you hear that word, if you've grown up in the church, maybe I know many of you have been connected to this particular church for a while, it might not be a new word to you, but it's one of those Christian words that is loaded with meaning that we often would maybe struggle to articulate. What does that word actually mean? And maybe some of you are in the room and you're, new to the claims of the Bible and exploring who God is, and it's an altogether unfamiliar term for you. So what is an apostle? Let me put it this way. An apostle is, to the New Testament, half of the Bible after the Lord Jesus came, what a prophet is to the Old Testament. Because of Jesus' love for his church, after he lived for us and died for us, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he selected particular men to oversee the transmission of his word 
that would be for God's church throughout all the ages. He chose particular men, in other words, who would represent his authority on the earth after he had ascended into heaven during this foundation-laying period in the life of God's people. What does that mean for us? It means when we come to a passage like Ephesians 1, 1 and 2, and we hear these words from Paul, we should not treat them any differently than when we hear the words of Jesus himself as they're recorded in the gospel. Paul is speaking with the authority of Christ as he writes to the Ephesian church, as he speaks by the Holy Spirit to us today. This is God's word just as much as any other part of the Bible, including the Gospels. Maybe some of you remember uh, having a Bible when you were younger, maybe you still use one that has the words of Jesus recorded in red, red letter Bibles. I'm not here to say you shouldn't use your red letter Bible, but we do need to be reminded that Paul is speaking to us with the authority of God. And what does that mean? Other than that, we should pay really close attention, which is true. It means that Paul, as we're answering the question who he is, Paul is a big deal. He's an apostle. But he hasn't always been an apostle. You can read more about his story in another book in the New Testament, the book of Acts, that records the early history of the church, and it tells us more about Paul's story. Paul actually used to go by the name Saul. And when he went by the name Saul, he actually spent a period of his life actively persecuting Christians, hunting them down. He would have seen children pulled from the arms of their parents. He would have seen Christians imprisoned because of their faith in Jesus. We know that at least on one account, but probably on others, he oversaw and approved of the execution of Christians. You can read about that in Acts chapter 7 with the martyrdom of Stephen. So not only has Paul not always been an apostle, he wasn't even a Christian. He wasn't even a follower of Jesus. He actively persecuted them. It would not be overstating the case to say that Paul, once upon a time, in modern terms, was a terrorist, a man who used violence and power and oppression against God's very own people. So what happened? How did this man, who was a terrorist, who was opposed to God, an enemy of God, how did he become the Apostle Paul who's writing this letter this morning? Paul met Jesus. That's the answer. He encountered the risen Christ, and it changed forever the trajectory of his life. It brought transformation so that Paul the terrorist would eventually become Paul the apostle. What does that mean for you and me? Why are we asking this question, who is Paul this morning? I want to remind you of something that I hope we will never get tired of hearing something that I love to repeat to students at the University of Illinois. What does the gospel mean? It means there is no one who is beyond the need of God's grace. It's a good reminder for us on Sunday morning, but it also means there's no one who is beyond the reach of God's grace. And Paul shows us that. So I want to ask you, do you still believe that that is true? 
Do you still believe that there is no one who's beyond the reach of God's grace? That there's no part of your life that is beyond the reach of God's grace? I imagine some of us here this morning feel burdened by the guilt of our sin. We feel oppressed and crushed and torn down. Maybe we wouldn't say, I'm a lost cause, but maybe there are parts of our lives that feel that way. Maybe some of you here this morning have loved ones that mean the world to you, that are actively running away from Jesus. And you've been praying for them for years, and if you're being honest, you're tempted to to give up hope that God can do anything about it after all. No matter how you come this morning, When we consider who Paul is, we're reminded that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. So if you're here this morning and you're still exploring the claims of the Bible, you're not sure whether you're a follower of Jesus yet, you're interested, but you haven't gone all in, I want to take a moment to speak to you directly and plead with you. Encountering Jesus changed Paul. It brought healing and restoration. It changed the course of his life. We can't even imagine what God can do in your life if you encounter Jesus by faith, just like Paul did on that road to Damascus so long ago. So that's who Paul is. Let's move on to our second question now. Who are we? As I've already indicated, I would not be surprised if some of us here this morning don't claim to be Christians. We're still exploring the claims of the Bible. If that's you, I'm really glad you're here. And I want to be very clear before I say what I'm about to say, that this message is for you. It's for you to consider. God is inviting you to respond to him with faith. But there is a sense in which Paul, writing this letter, had a particular audience in mind, and we could call that audience the church. He's writing to Christians, people who are convinced of the claims of the Bible, people that are following Jesus that have put their faith in him. So as we consider this next question, who are we? For those of you that are followers of Jesus, I want to extend you the invitation to reconsider who God says you are, which is so much more important than what you often think about yourself or what the world says about you. And if you're someone who's exploring the claims of the Bible this morning, then let this be something that helps you to consider what you are being invited into. So how does Paul, in this short passage, tell us who we are? What is the church? What does it mean to be a Christian? He does it with two words. And the first word is the word saint. He describes Christians as saints. Now, saints in the Bible are not extra super holy people. They're not like the Navy SEALs Team 6 of religion. It's not a term that is reserved for people that have performed miracles or people that have left a big impact on the church or society. Saint is just the word that describes believers in Jesus. It describes you and me. What does it mean? Well, saint comes from the word That means holy. A saint is someone who is set apart. But even when we hear that language of being set apart, of being holy, there might be all sorts of false connotations that would come to our minds. Uh, Does does being holy mean being stuffy? 
or being self-righteous or looking down our nose at others. No, to actually understand what holy means, we have to look back to the Old Testament where pots and vessels are called holy, where objects are described in saintly terms. What does that mean for us? To be holy means to be set apart. It means to be dedicated to God. To be holy, to be a saint, is to be someone who has been set apart from the world and for relationship with God. That's what it means. And a logical or a theological conclusion in light of that, a result is that Christians ought to be different. The foundational reality is what God has done through Jesus, and then there are all sorts of ramifications in our lives. Now, as soon as we hear that, that Christians, part of what it means to be holy is to be different, we run into a problem, don't we? Very often, at least more often than we would like, Christians do not look that different from the world around us. Divorce rates in the church are marginally better than the surrounding world. I wish I could tell you that sex scandals and power abuse scandals were merely the territory of Hollywood and Washington, but that would not be true. Maybe some of you here this morning have been hurt by Christians, seriously hurt. Maybe you've been wounded by the church. Christians, although we are saints through Jesus, are not always different. So if you're a Christian here today, my goal, I want to be very clear, is not to bash us or to make us feel bad. Uh, It's actually quite the opposite. But I do want us all to genuinely consider this question. Does your life look different? Does it really Could put it another way, could someone who is maybe an acquaintance in your life, who knows you but but not really well, could they look at your life and learn something about the character of God because of you? About God's gentleness, his mercy, his wisdom, his purity. Jesus Christ is the most holy man who ever lived, God in the flesh. And what was the result of his holiness? His holiness was not a stiff arm that kept the worst sinners of the day at bay, although he always called men and women and children to repentance. His holiness is the very thing that drew the most notorious sinners in his day to himself. They saw he was different, and they came to him because of it. I want to remind us this morning that the, the world around us does not need a bunch of Christians that look like the world around us. Although the goal is not to just be a part of some Christian subculture and wear a cross and listen to Christian music, although those things are fine. But it's when we look like and smell like and feel like Jesus that we will become more and more what God has already said is true about us. We will become saints people who are set apart and as a result live different lives for the glory of God. What would it look like if we as a church continued to be a place where we were becoming those kinds of people together? So Christians are saints more quickly now. We have the second descriptor. Christians are faithful in Christ Jesus. 
Now, when we hear that word faithful, it's possible that a few synonyms come to mind for you. You might think of the word faithful like you would think of the word reliable or obedient or trustworthy. And those are good words, words that I hope describe us in some measure and in increasing measure over time. But I actually don't think that's what Paul has in view here when he calls the Ephesian believers faithful in Christ Jesus. Fundamentally, to be faithful is to be someone who has faith, and what does he say, in Christ Jesus. The fundamental message of the Bible is not about what we do or how holy we are, but what Christ has done in our place. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be someone who looks not to your own performance, whether it be in sin or in relative obedience. No, to be a Christian means to be someone who looks to Jesus, faithful in Christ Jesus. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane put it this way. I love these words. He said, for every look you take at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ. That's what it means to be a member of the church. It doesn't mean to just be a member of some holy club, but someone who is faithful in Christ Jesus. That brings us to our last question of the morning. We've seen who Paul is, a terrorist who became an apostle, who reminds us that God's grace can reach anyone. It can reach any corner of our lives. We've seen who we are. We're saints. We're faithful in Christ Jesus. Now let's answer the question, what is the gospel? And we've been talking about it already, haven't we? But I want to focus us in on these two words. It's the title of our sermon that help us to see the good news at the heart of the Bible, grace and peace. That word grace is used 12 times over the course of this relatively short letter, and the word peace is used eight times. So what do we learn from that? Without even studying the rest of the book, which I encourage you to do, we learned that grace and peace is at the heart of the message of this letter, and it's actually at the heart of the message of the whole Bible. It helps us to know what is the good news. So let's focus in on these words together, grace and peace. Grace is a word in the Bible that means something like God's favor. Grace is a gift. And I have a theory, a hypothesis, in light of my own lived experience, in light of conversations with others, that very often, even if we've got all the right theological frameworks in mind, functionally, we have something like a half-true view of grace. We think of it something like this. Let me illustrate it by means of a hypothetical story. Grace is like a child who's in a grocery store with his mother, and he's sitting in the grocery cart, and he's being quiet. He's not doing anything. He's just sitting there. But by the end of the trip, his mother comes to him and presents him with an ice cream cone. And we think, ah, that's grace. He wasn't doing anything to deserve an ice cream cone, but his mom, in love and at cost to herself, she came and she offered it to him. That's only half true. 
the biblical view of grace is more like this. We are children sitting in a grocery cart at a grocery store shopping with our mom, but instead of sitting quietly, we are screaming and yelling and throwing a fit. I'm seeing some nods like some of you have been there before. And then at the end of, the all, of it all, the, the child even slaps his mother in the face and then in love, in kindness, in patience, not necessarily recommending this as a parental strategy, the mother comes and offers this child an ice cream cone. Grace in the Bible is a gift, but it's not just a gift. It's not just God's favor and welcome and acceptance and delight in the absence of deserving. Grace is all of those things in the presence of our active undeserving, our active demerit. Doesn't that change the way that we think about what God has done for us in Jesus. We deserve something from God, and it's his wrath, his judgment, his anger, but he sent his son Jesus to take that from us and to give us instead his grace. Grace reminds us that God meets us right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. So that brings us to the next word, peace. Now, grace and peace, at least in some parts of the church, have become kind of a formalized greeting. We say grace and peace to you, or maybe you've signed an email at the end. If you're not saying in Christ, which is a very common one, you might say grace and peace and then sign your name, and that's a good thing. But when we hear these words together, we ought to ask the question, why are they together? What is their relationship? And I'm sure there's more than one right answer to that question, but I think in the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's something like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 20th century preacher, put it this way. Grace is the beginning. Peace is the end. Grace, these are my words now, although I hope they're true, Grace is God's initiation in our lives. Peace is God's intention for our lives. Grace tells us that God meets us where we are, but peace is where God leads us. And just as was true with the word grace, I think we have some functional misconceptions about what it means that God extends to us peace in Jesus. In our context, we often think of peace as absence of warfare, absence of conflict, and it is that, but it's so much more. Paul almost certainly had in mind the rich biblical word from the Old Testament, the word shalom. That means more than just the absence of warfare or the absence of conflict, but flourishing, wholeness, And at the center of it all, not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of relationship, of intimacy, of what we could call communion with the living God who made us for relationship with him. We can be known by and loved by the God who made us, and we can know him and love him in return. Isn't it amazing, even though 
it just comes out quickly out of Paul and we could pass over it without further thought that he says this grace and peace comes to you from God, our Father. God is not just your judge. He's not just your creator. He's not just your king, although he's all those things. He, in Jesus, invites you to call him Father. Do you have an intimate relationship with him? So I want to begin to wrap us up with Uh, another hypothetical story that I'm stealing from another pastor. I want you to imagine that towards the end of this summer, you have some dear friends. I've started saying dear now, by the way, since I moved to the Midwest. I don't know what, what the deal is with that, but you have some dear friends who have gotten you a reservation at a super nice restaurant in downtown Chicago. I mean, this place has a Michelin star All of the reviews on Google are are five-star. People are raving about it. There's a world-renowned chef. And they've gotten you this reservation. It's one of those places where you couldn't even get in the door if you didn't have a reservation like months in advance. And you got in. But you show up to this amazing restaurant, and as soon as you walk in the door, the host who's behind the welcoming table looks at you And he's kind of giving you a funny eye. And he asks you a question. As soon as you walk in, he says, where is your jacket? See, this is one of those places where you have to have a certain attire to be seated. For men, it would be a jacket or a blazer. For women, it would be something like a nightgown or a a beautiful dress. And you've shown up. And the host asks you, where's your jacket? Did you leave it in your car? And you didn't leave it in your car. You you didn't bring a jacket. So you begin to turn around and exit this restaurant that you've driven two and a half hours uh, to go to. And you're feeling ashamed and disappointed and defeated. And right then, the chef shows up, the world-renowned chef. And he, instead of kicking you out, instead of yelling at you, he gives you his jacket. And somehow, magically, the jacket perfectly fits. And then he invites you to come and sit at his table, the chef's table. And then he makes you this perfectly curated 10-course meal that is just maps on perfectly to all your preferences. Everything that you would want to eat, it's at this meal. And then at the end of the evening, the chef looks at you and he says... What was your favorite part of the night? What was your favorite part of the evening? Now, again, I imagine there might be different good answers to that question, but I bet no one in this room would say, my favorite part of the evening was when you gave me your jacket. That was a good gift. It's why you could enter the restaurant and sit at the chef's table and enjoy fellowship with him and the things that he provided. The jacket was amazing. But if you said that, it would actually be an insult to the chef, to his presence, to his friendship, to the meal that he's serving you. Friends, God's grace, we might even focus more narrowly on the grace of justification by faith, the teaching, the true teaching from God's word that the moment you put your trust in Jesus, 
It's like God's putting a jacket on you. He's taking away your filth, and he's giving you the righteousness of Jesus instead, which means you have access to him. It is an amazing truth. It is worth meditating on every day. It can be an engine for you in your relationship with God and growth in his life. I hope we never forget it, but it's not the, it's not the point. It's not the end. It's like the jacket. God offers you not just grace, but peace, fellowship with him, communion with the lover of your souls. So I want to return for one more moment to the questions that we opened with. What do you want out of life? What do you want out of this summer? My goal this morning was not to disabuse you of those desires or make you think they're wrong or bad, but in just these short verses from God's word to help us to see God offers us so much more. He offers us himself in Jesus. We can have fellowship with him now until the day when we see him face to face. That is such good news. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for grace and peace, which comes from you and our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that all of your goodness, all of your gifts comes to us in Jesus. So help us even now to look to him with faith, to be counted among the faithful in Christ Jesus. In light of that, help us to live different lives for your glory and the good of the watching world. Send us your spirit in greater measure so that we would become more and more what you have already said is true about us. We ask that you would increase your grace in us until the day we reach the full enjoyment of the peace that is ours in Christ. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.